The following audio is from First Hamilton Christian Reformed Church, where our vision is to be transformed by the gospel so that we can participate with God in his work of renewing all things in Christ. For more information about First Hamilton, visit www.firsthamilton.ca. Good morning. It's very good to be with you. Uh, it may surprise you to know that I've actually been in the pastor's office next door many, many times because Chris Schoon and I were and still are in the same pastor's prayer group. And uh, of course, as Hayden so kindly noted, I am one of his old professors. I think the word you were looking for there, brother, was former. <laughs> yeah, we're good, we're good. Um, I should also tell you that we, we arranged this, this play date quite some time ago, and somehow it escaped my notice that this is the first Sunday in, oh, I don't know, a decade, that the bishop is visiting my home congregation. So somehow you are the excuse for me fleeing the bishop. I don't know. Let's bow our heads. Lord Jesus, you are the living word. Come, speak to us. Guide us in your way. For your name's sake, amen. September 11th, 2002, the one-year anniversary of 9-11, President George W. Bush is on Ellis Island, standing in front of of the Statue of Liberty. His address to the nation, to the south of us, is exactly 904 words in length. It takes, give or take, seven minutes to deliver. He talks about the loss of loved ones, about national resolve to defeat tyranny and oppression, about a commitment to tolerance and justice. I have no quarrel with any of that. It's the kind of thing that you would expect a speechwriter to come up with until we get to the final paragraph in which he says this. Our country is strong and our cause is even larger than our country. Ours is the cause of human dignity, freedom guided by conscience and guarded by peace. This ideal of America is the hope of all mankind. That hope drew millions to this harbor. That hope still lights our way. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness will not overcome it. God bless America. It's the kind of thing that you would expect an ultranationalist to say. It's in line with John F. Kennedy, Ronald Reagan, Barack Obama, and a multitude of other American politicians, all referring to America as a city set on a hill for all to see, and it is outright blasphemy. A political leader takes the words of the gospel, John chapter 1, verse 5, words that refer exclusively to Jesus, the Messiah, the light of the world, and he applies those words to the nation that has voted him into power. It's not just presumption, it's blasphemy. 
because no matter what your political preferences may be in this country or any other, no one nation is the light of the world. And the Lord of every nation yields his sovereignty to no one. So what exactly was Jesus talking about? You are the light of the world, he says. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do you light a lamp in order to hide it. You put it up on a lampstand, it gives light to all the house. In the same way, let your light so shine before others that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. I don't know about you, but for me, this one's a puzzle. If you are familiar with a certain strain of, and it is a strain, of gospel scholarship, you will have encountered the claim that Jesus' words in Matthew, where he tells the crowd that they're the light of the world, and Jesus' words in John 8, 12, I am the light of the world, are irreconcilable. One or the other must be the invention of the early church because they can't possibly both be true at the same time. As if the early church and those of their day were incapable of entertaining paradox and mystery. Still, it's a fair question. If Jesus is the light of the world, how do we get to be the light of the world? But that's not the only problem. Jesus says, when you give to the poor, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your charity may, charity may be accomplished in secret. Uh, this is also in the Sermon on the Mount. But here he says, let everyone see your good works. Put them on display for everyone to, to behold them. Now that's a contradiction and there's no way of getting around it. Uh, but the third problem here is even more of a challenge, I think, even more of a puzzle. How do we keep from insisting that our good works, our project, our nation, our church, our theological position, our view of things, and everyone who thinks like us are the city built on a hill and a light to illuminate all those other people who are still in the darkness? How do we keep from confusing ourselves and our convictions with those of the Messiah, the one true light of the world when we're supposed to be the light of the world? Now that'll keep you up at night. Well, partly this is where gospel studies are really helpful. We can start by going back to the Sermon on the Mount back, in fact, before the Sermon on the Mount, at least as Matthew tells it. Remember, and this is really the important part, remember that chapter and verse divisions are a late addition to the text. Matthew didn't say number one, number two. No, he just wrote. Now, for us, it seems very natural to begin reading, for example, at Matthew 5.1, blessed are the poor in spirit. That makes perfect sense as a beginning point, but not originally. Here's how it went if you'd read it in Matthew's day. Jesus walks by the Sea of Galilee. He calls two brothers, Simon and Andrew, to follow him. He sees two more brothers, James and John. He calls them, and immediately they drop 
their nets and they follow him. Then change of topic from the specific to the general. He went throughout Galilee teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and curing every disease and every sickness among the people. So his fame spread throughout all of Syria and they brought to him all the sick, all who were afflicted with various diseases and pains, demoniacs, epileptics, and paralytics, and he healed them all. And great crowds followed him from Galilee, the Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, from beyond the Jordan. When he saw the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and after he sat down, his disciples came to him. Then he began to speak, and he taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. No chapter break. No pause in the narrative between his ministry of teaching and proclaiming and healing and deliverance and the sermon that comes next. And that tells us something really important about what it means to be the light of the world. Both for them, for him, and especially for us. You see, what Jesus does is first he blesses them and then he says, well, this is the blessing that you received. This is the explanation. First the proof, then the exposition. So when they hear his words, you are the light of the world, they do so without pride or presumption. They're just there as those whose need has been met, has just been answered. They, they rejoice in what they've received and they say, oh, that's what that was. And they're hungry for more, so they listen. I am the light of the world, says Jesus in John 8, 12. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of the world. And there you have it. Exactly. They were in various shades of darkness, and he's given them light. They were gripped by the power of death in one degree, one way or another and he's given them life. And that is, after all, Jesus' way. He is holy, and unaccountably, he makes us holy. He's faithful, and he makes us faithful. He is good and true, and he makes us like himself. He is life itself, and he gives us life. He gives it all away. All that he is and all that he has, he pours into those who do not have even to the point that Paul can say, for our sake, God made him to be sin who knew no sin that we might become, look around you, that you might be the righteousness of God. He gives it all away. They are the light of the world because he alone is their light. Just as they're blessed in their spiritual poverty, their grief, their humility, their, their hunger and thirst for righteousness, even when they're persecuted and they suffer for the sake of righteousness. Now, none of those are good things, but they're where Jesus meets us. And none of those things would be a blessing were it not for the one who stands behind his promises and meets us and gives us life there. All that we are, we owe to him. And at least as I see it, that's what makes sense of that other contradiction, the real contradiction between hiding your good works and making sure everybody knows about them. We have this treasure, says the apostle, 
in earthen vessels, delicate, fragile, cracked containers, liable to fall apart. In order that it may be perfectly clear that the transcendent power doesn't belong to us, but comes alone from God. When I came to you, he says, how'd you like this for your pastor? I did not come proclaiming the testimony of God in lofty words or wisdom. I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Trust me, you wouldn't hire him because this is what he says next. I came to you in weakness, in fear, in much trembling. My speech, my proclamation, my sermon were not with plausible words of wisdom, but with a demonstration of the Spirit and power so that your faith might not rest in human wisdom, but on the power of God. The Apostle Paul of all people comes to them not in power or pride or even self-confidence as though he has anything of his own to offer the church. He comes in weakness. He comes downright afraid and shaking. It's like the crowds on whom Jesus had such compassion who were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Paul has no difficulty putting his works on a lampstand because it's perfectly clear to him and to them that anything he's accomplished is due to God alone. You may remember that the church in Corinth is not exactly an Apostle Paul fan club. His letters are weighty and strong, they say, but his bodily presence is weak and his speech of no account. 2 Corinthians 10.10. In other words, he talks big when he's at a safe distance, but when he turns up in person, he doesn't amount to much, and his words are not worth much either. Who is this guy? They know and he knows that if anything truly worthwhile comes out of what he says and does, it could only be God because it sure isn't him. Those are the good works that give glory to God alone, not us. So that whoever sees them doesn't, wouldn't be so foolish as to put their faith in us, but only in the power of God. And that leads us to the third problem, which is the most difficult problem of all. If we are the light of the world, a city built on a hill. Standing out for all to see, how do we tell the difference between what is truly of God and what simply you or me or the pastor shouting to make himself heard? What keeps us thinking from presidents on down that God blesses our nation? our church, our project, our deeply held conviction, our way of life and serving God, but not that other person's? What keeps us from the outright blasphemy of making our own preferences messianic? Let me be specific. Whether it's homelessness 
social justice and marginalization, the legacy of the residential schools in particular, or human sexuality. We are facing any number of difficult and divisive issues in the church today. Your church, my church, every church. We need to have those debates. There is no avoiding them. The difficulty is not the issues themselves alone, but the way in which we conduct ourselves as we debate them. I belong to Paul, says one group. Ha! I belong to Apollos, says another. Another group says, I belong to Peter. And some people say, I just belong to Jesus. And before long, we have a church fight because we're each convinced that God is on our side, that Christ is on our side, that we are the light of the world, and that those on the other side are not only incorrect, but they're unfaithful to Christ. Does this sound familiar to you? For me, one of the most frankly interesting observations that emerged from the debate about human sexuality in the United Church of Canada 25 years ago was that the progressive wing made a very bold claim for their position, that theirs was not just a bid for inclusivity or justice, no, it was a prophetic movement inspired by the Spirit of God. Well, once you make that claim, there's no arguing against it. The Spirit is on your side, and anyone who disagrees with you must be unspiritual. Well, that is what we do from presidents on down. Now, let me be very, very clear that I am not making a claim for one position or another on this or any of the other divisive issues that are actually tearing the church apart. Don't try to pin me down because you won't. I'm making a statement about Christian character, about how we embody the light that is Christ, how we know whether the city that is built on a hill actually is of God. Let me propose three biblical principles, and with these I'll close. First, Paul insists, and you can look it up, the spirit of prophets is subject to prophets. 1 Corinthians 14, 32. Now, we do this, so if you or I believe that we have the inside track on Christian truth, that our convictions are inspired by the Holy Spirit, thinking so can never mean that another prophet inspired by the Spirit of God, might have something else, something different, something deeper and wiser to say on the issues. We can never forget, and this too is from the Apostle Paul, that our knowledge is imperfect and our prophecy is imperfect. 1 Corinthians 13, 9, which is precisely why he argues that the greatest spiritual gift of all is a gift, an anointing, of sacrificial caritas that truly embraces the other. However much we strive for truth and clarity, our striving and our conclusions must always be carried out with charity. 
must always be provisional until we see the Lord face to face. The spirit of prophets is always subject to prophets. Which is why, and this is my second proposal, James can say, we need to hear this, wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, willing to yield. Lost my place. Full of mercy and good fruits without a trace of partiality or hypocrisy. Now, I have to tell you, those are the things that all go out the window first when we start to argue. Notice the next sentence. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Third, the third principle in response to the third problem of claiming too much for our own preferences and projects. If Paul, Paul, proclaims the gospel itself in weakness and fear and trembling, if we have this glorious truth, this treasure in fragile vessels, if the light of the world and the city on a hill are made up of those who know their need of Jesus and know their need as those who have been met and blessed by him, then that is how we will recognize what is truly of him. I find it difficult to imagine that those with the loudest voices, the most righteous indignation, and the cleverest use of power are those who most resemble Christ and carry forward his cause. It will be the weak, the foolish, the wounded, those who have nothing of their own to offer apart from Christ himself, whom we will most need to hear. Oh yes, we'll probably overlook or ignore them. We often do. Unless, of course, we manage in that moment to remember that the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom and the weakness of God is much stronger than all human strength. My point is a simple one. If we are to contend for Christian truth, whatever the issue, let us each be certain that we embody it first. Let us come to the questions of our day that cannot be avoided as those who stand as much in need of grace as those with whom we disagree. Let us be willing even to be crucified, if need be, because that is the way of Christ. Would you bow your heads with me? Jesus, my beloved, 
I do not long for crucifixion, and yet you call me. As we wait before you and seek your light, would you meet us first in our need that we might speak with others as you have spoken with us, that we might welcome others as you have welcomed us, and that we might show the same mercy that you have shown us and lead us forward that we might be the light of the world and the city set on a hill that you desire us to be. This we ask, Jesus, because you are all we have. Amen.